Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. With Mike Vaccara. Mike's all yours. Hello. Thank you, Connell. Welcome to The Hill. Biden and the border. It's the crisis plaguing the president. Migrants arriving in record numbers, overwhelming American cities from El Paso to Chicago to New York. As Biden now looks for answers on Capitol Hill and in Mexico City. This is a caravan makes its way north. Republicans are pushing for a crackdown with now even some Democrats asking for answers. Beyond the rhetoric, what can get done to make a difference? We speak to Texas lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. Plus, clean up in the Granite State. Nikki Haley explains what she did and didn't say about civil war and slavery. Critics are piling on, led by the man she hopes to beat in the fall, President Joe Biden. Now, after the walk back, will she pay a price at the polls? We'll have the latest. And it's no longer just a movie. Robocops are on patrol in New York City subway. A glimpse of the future or a big white elephant? Thanks for being with us here on The Hill. I'm Mike Vaccara, filling in for Blake Berman, and I am joined by Mr. Scott Bolden, former D.C. Democratic Party chairman, Kelly Meyer, News Nation Washington correspondent, Shermichael Singleton, Republican strategist and former chief of staff to the House and Housing and Urban, Urban Development Department, and Alex Gangatano, White House correspondent for our friends and partners at The Hill. Also joining us, Mick Mulvaney, former Trump White House Chief of Staff and News Nation political and economic contributor, joining us somewhere from Little Grass Shack. The Little The Hill on News Nation starts right now. <laughs> Will former President Donald Trump be on the 2024 ballot in all 50 states? Another challenge could be decided within the hour. Maine Secretary of State is expected to announce her decision tonight on whether Trump can be on that state's primary ballot in March. So far, different states have issued different rulings. Michigan's Supreme Court rejected efforts to take Trump off the ballot after Colorado's Supreme Court ruled Trump was disqualified. There are now over a dozen pending challenges to former President Trump's candidacy. Scott, what is the fight here all about, and how can these states come to different conclusions on essentially the same question, that is, the 14th Amendment? As a former state party chair, I know that each state does two things. One, they control who's on the ballot, whether it's a federal election or whether it's a state election. Uh, two, it's up to the parties. And three, the rules and regulations governing who's on the ballot and the election process are all very unique. Colorado had an enabling statute that called for fact-finding and a trial if you wanted the challenge. But in the District of Columbia and Maryland and Virginia, they have administrative processes before the Board of Election and Ethics. So everyone is different. You'll notice the ones that have denied uh, Trump 
There was a fight in the fact with Colorado. The ones that have said he can stay on the ballot for procedural reasons are all kind of administrative review right, right. that can be appealed. So the language of the 14th Amendment is no one's qualified for office if they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion. But President Trump has, has gone after the main secretary of state, a Democrat, who has tweeted uh, things about President Trump and January 6th, actually calling it an insurrection at one point. The president and his lawyers say that she should disqualify herself. I mean, she should. It's obvious that this person is unable to be an objective uh, ruler on this particular case. And as it pertains to the 14th Amendment, I think there's a serious question about enforcement. Uh, Can a state Supreme Court, can an elected or appointed official make that decision or should that decision be made by Congress? Some legal scholars on the conservative side, particularly from the Federalist Society, have argued pretty I I would argue, Scott, pretty well-rounded arguments that this should be a decision for Congress to make, not the state individually. With that said, though, politically speaking, when Republican voters look at something like a a Democratic-appointed, Democratic-elected individual who's tweeted very questionable things about the president, questionable things about his behavior, they only see that through a political lens. And they do see that as some form of an election interference. All right, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to bring in Mick Mulvaney because he, as (laughs) usual, has a unique perspective (laughs) on uh, matters pertaining to the former president. Uh, who actually worked in the White House under the former president. Uh, Mick, what's your take on these, you know, each state has a different procedure and it's getting very confusing. It is, and they're setting some really, really dangerous precedents. By the way, Mike, the 14th Amendment doesn't ban anybody who's participated in insurrection. It's banned any officers who have participated in insurrection. It was designed to deal with folks who participated in the Civil War, and it specifically does not identify the president, the vice president. But why are we having this conversation? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court of the United States will come in and say, look, Nine to nothing, the Colorado decision is wrong. By the way, nine to nothing, Trump is not immune from uh, from claims as he's making it claims he's making in other in other cases and try to simply bring some bipartisanship to this to stop this nonsense. Because invariably, if Colorado stands, you will hear from the rest of our lifetimes now whether or not a Democrat will be on a ballot in a red state or a Republican will be on a ballot in a blue state. It's a really, really bad precedent for the nation. And I hope people come to their senses. Alex, what, what's the, what are Democrats here in Washington? How, what's their take on all this? Yeah, I think to Mick's point, some Democrats are concerned that this actually sets the wrong precedent here and that it will come back to bite them. But it also rallies Trump supporters. It rallies his base. This is just another hit against Trump that's going to get people excited and get voters turned out. Even moderate Republicans at this point think this is a ridiculous ruling. And also it feeds into Trump's claims that the establishment is right. against him right. and just rallies that it's as all, well. It's sort of on message for the president, right. uh, the former president. That's <laughs> his superpower, right? And I was going to say, I think it's also interesting you're seeing from the 2024 field, his other contenders really all standing behind right. him here. Even Chris Christie, right. who is generally critical of Trump, he is also saying that this should be decided by the voters, mm-hmm. not up to these states. Well, but the law does allow it. And the okay. narrative that's driven, who's driving this narrative? All right, I'm, I'm going to give the former president his say here. Okay. Since we, we said on, on Truth Social, we posted some truth on Truth Social. This pathetic gambit to rig the election has failed all across the country, including in states that, we, that have historically leaned heavily towards the Democrats. 
We have to prevent the 2024 election from being rigged and stolen like they stole 2020. Yeah, but the law in each of these states allows for these challenges. But, you know, my favorite legal test is the but-for test, right? If it's but-for Donald Trump engaging, and you have a factual finding in Colorado, engaging in, uh, in insurrectionist conduct, right, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, remember, moderate Republicans brought the case in Colorado, yeah. all right? So if but-for his engagement, engaging in this bad conduct, all it right. wouldn't be an issue. And you've got, you've got to put that in the mat, in okay, the mix. I've got two congressmen standing by okay. on a different subject, so I want to get to it, and that is the migration across Mexico and the, and the border crisis here in the United States. That migrant caravan, believed to be numbering in the thousands, is right now heading through Mexico toward the U.S. border. U.S. officials say Mexico is pledging to take new enforcement actions to help, the, help stem the migrant surge. It follows Wednesday's meeting between top Biden administration officials Alejandro Mayorkas and Antony Blinken, along with the Mexican president. And joining us now is Republican Texas Congressman Tony Gonzalez. He represents an 800-mile stretch of the border that has recently seen a surge in migrants, and that, of course, includes Eagle Pass, Texas. Uh, Congressman, you have said uh, that it's in the interests of many here in Washington as this negotiation behind the scenes between the administration and some members of the Senate and Congress moves forward on immigration reform. Uh, you said that uh, it's in their interest to have this crisis flare up. You said that earlier in the year. Do you still believe that? And do you believe it's possible for Washington to do something at this point? Yes, Washington, D.C., you're always going to have people say, well, this doesn't go far enough. I can't be supportive of it. And then on the other end, you're going to have other people go, oh, this goes too far. I can't be supportive of it. Meanwhile, the American public are stuck in the middle. Meanwhile, the American public deserve to feel safe in their own homes. And that's what this open border crisis does. It, it creates chaos and it creates uncertainty, and it makes Americans feel unsafe. I certainly feel it in my district. It's over 800 miles of the southern border, yeah. nearly half of the overall southern border. Yeah, do you feel the ground has shifted, though, as a political sense? Democrats are now coming to the table, and many are acknowledging that this is a true crisis. What I've seen is for, for many Democrats, they view this as a policy win. They see these images and they go, finally, we are we have we have uh, we've achieved what we what we what we set out for. And then I see other people, other Democrats go, holy smokes, are we going to get smoked in 2024 if we don't do something about it? Meanwhile, yeah. back at the ranch, you know, places like mine, districts like mine, 70 percent of the uh, of my district is Hispanic, uh, pre you know, predominantly uh, an area that is has been decimated by this border crisis. You've got people that are lifelong Democrats that are going, you know what, I've had enough. Not necessarily meaning they're going to come over to the Republican yeah. Party, but they're now a jump ball. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, something broke today. It's very fascinating. It just caught our eye this afternoon, Congressman. That meeting yesterday in Mexico City between the Secretary of State and the Mexican President, a communique, joint communique was issued, uh, part of which said, there at the bottom, the delegations discussed the benefit of regularizing, that's hard to say, the situation of long-term long, long undocumented Hispanic migrants and DACA recipi recipients. That sounds like what used to be called 20 years ago when George W. Bush tried to have immigration reform amnesty. And as a matter of fact, that's what Speaker Johnson has just said in a statement that he released. The United States must focus on policies that deter, not attract people attempting to come here illegally. So what is your stance? What could be done in any ultimate deal with these some 11 or 12 million people who are in this country illegally? 
once again, you're going to have members that are automatically off the table. And I don't view it as a deal. I view it as a solution. And the solution should not be rewarding those that are coming over illegally. The, the solution should be protecting Americans that are here in our country. It should also include legal pathways where people can, can do it the right way. You mentioned DACA. You mentioned other work visas. All these people are being put at the back of the line. And, and the folks that are coming over illegally are being rewarded. I mean, the, the rhetoric is so easy on both sides to just blame one another and round and round we go. We've done that for three decades. It's going to take real political leadership to bring people together and ultimately say what is in the best right. interest of the country. And that is to keep America safe from terrorist threats both abroad as well as here domestically because there's been so much anger that this open border crisis has, has spurred. All right, Congressman Gonzalez, thank you very much for your time. We will see you on, I guess, January 9th back here in Washington when Congress reconvenes. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right. So now let's turn to a Democratic congressman from Texas who also represents an area of the border, and that would be Representative Henry Cuellar. Congressman Cuellar, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you believe the White thank House now understands the urgency of this situation? I think they do, but they need to have the fortitude to do the right things. And uh, one, get Mexico to do a lot more on the southern border, because the more they do down on the southern border, then the numbers are going to go down on our southern border, number one. And number two, we got to address the uh, the uh, pull factor. That is, if we don't detain people at the border, give them a quick hearing and then deport people, then that magnet will continue to go on. Look, the bottom line is, uh, if you have 100 people that come in, 87% of them are going to be rejected once they go in front of an immigration judge. Yeah. Only 13%. So why are we allowing 100% when we ought to be allowing only 13% of those individuals? Congressman, uh, the Justice Department, you know, of course, the governor of your state, Greg Abbott, a couple of weeks ago uh, initiated a law or signed a law that would essentially allow any law enforcement officer in the state of Texas, regardless of what agency they work for, to arrest someone suspected of being in the country illegally. And then that person would face two choices, go back across the border or face charges in a court of law. The Justice Department, uh, there are now indications from the Houston Chronicle reporting that is going to try to stop that in court. What's your take? Well, first of all, under federal law, there is uh, misdemeanors and there are felonies for people that come across of the river illegally. So we have that under federal law. My only concern with the state is that they're not empowered uh, to do immigration uh, enforcement. It's not the military. It's not certainly not the state troopers in the state of Texas or the local government. It's the border patrol. So we got to get the federal government to do its job. And that is you hold people, you detain people, yeah. give them the, their hearing and then deport them. Uh, Congressman, uh, you have said that you are not in regular communication, notwithstanding the fact that you have a border district. You are not in regular communication with the White House. Yesterday, the mayor, mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, another Democrat, said it baffles him why he can't talk to the White House about the 160,000 migrants that arrived, arrived in his city this year. Uh, are, you, are you frustrated with the White House response to this? What should the White House be doing more now uh, as this crisis unfolds? Well, I am in regular contact with the Secretary of Homeland uh, with the CBP commissioner, with the Border Patrol chiefs. I am in regular contact with them, and that's where I'm focusing. And I want to make sure that when we do the appropriations, that we put monies in the right areas and make some policy changes. Am I a little frustrated with the White House? Of course I am. 
but that started back, uh, I would say, probably a week or two weeks after the inauguration. So I now focus working with the Homeland Security and trying to focus with the men and women that have been doing this for many years. Okay. All right. Congressman Henning Cuellar, we thank you very much for your time, and we'll see you as well uh, on January 9th back here in Washington when Congress gets back together. Okay. Happy New Year. All righty. Now, as the caravan slowly makes its way through Mexico and the numbers of migrants crossing the border continues to rise, let's turn to our panel for more reaction on what we've just heard from these congresspeople. Uh, first of all, I don't you guys may, were not, maybe not around in George, 20 years ago when George W. Bush tried to do immigration reform. It's the third rail of politics. What are the chances we're going to see anything come out of this? I was thinking about this as he was talking, you know, and right before they you know, went on break for the Christmas holiday, we did start to see some movement, whether it was them tying this to Ukraine and, and the Biden administration wanting to get Ukraine across the finish line. For whatever strategy reason, we are seeing Mayorkas and other officials on the Hill, uh, Sullivan up there, uh, Austin up there, everybody getting together on this. Um, you know, I think we saw the reaction from the White House today saying that there will be more officials from Mexico coming to the White House in January to continue the discussion on this. So I think this is closer than I've seen the White House get. Yeah, Alex, this. is yeah. the White House feeling the heat? I think they are feeling the heat. I mean, I think the the president himself and um, the folks he sent up to the Hill, it was too little too late right before the, the recess. And they saw the backlash from progressives and from advocates who thought even working with Republicans on this was a step too far. Yeah. And they were concerned that there'd be too uh, much tightening at the border. But I think that Biden, at the end of the day, is going to be a moderate about this. He has to appeal to independents. He has to appeal to moderates. He <laughs> even has to appeal to Republicans in the 2024 election. Yeah. So uh, border security is how he can do that. And you might annoy some progressive Democrats, but I think that's the risk they're willing to I mean, to this take. is the closest we've come in decades to getting this done, but it's yeah. still a long way to go. We got to go. Sure, Michael, we'll come back. Coming up, the long road to recovery. It's been more than four months after wildfires ripped through the Hawaiian island of Maui. I'll talk with Hawaii Governor Josh Green about why he's pushing vacation rental owners to help. And an exercise in damage control. Nikki Haley's walking back her recent comments about the cause of the Civil War. The blowback she's facing even from President Biden. Welcome back to The Hill. Four months after the devastating wildfires in Maui, <coughs> the island is reopening. But for the residents of Lahaina, the struggle continues. Over 6,000 people are still displaced living in hotels. Governor Josh Green wants to do something about that. He's now pushing for 3,000 short-term vacation rentals to be converted into long-term housing for those displaced by the wildfire. And joining us now is Hawaii Governor Josh Green. Aloha, Governor. Thanks very much for joining us today. It's good to see you again, sir. It's so great to you see you. Have Thanks, said, All righty. Thousands of survivors still have no place to live. Many have been moving from hotel to hotel, others camping in tents on the beach. You have said you're thinking about a moratorium that we just talked about uh, and, and uh, on short-term rentals and putting these folks in the Airbnbs or the RBOs or whatever the case may be. You bring the hammer down and make that happen. When are you going to do it? I'm going to do it in January if we don't get enough uh, help. Uh, let me frame this for everyone. And so they know that it's not some kind of... Um, you know, dangerous idea uh, or a policy decision that's it is that's fickle. We have 27,000 short-term rentals on the island of Maui. We have 3,000 families that need housing. Now, what I'm proposing is gently to have people volunteer 
to transition their short-term rental to a long-term rental. We will keep them whole. In other words, we'll give them fair market rate for what they were getting at their at their short-term rental rate. And we also passed a tax break, the county government did, so that they will not pay uh, property taxes for uh-huh. 18 months. So it keeps them whole, but we need 3,000 people to step up, those who have these properties, because that way we can get our people out of hotels, of which there are 6,126 people in hotels right now, and into long-term yeah. rentals so for time I can build housing. Okay. Uh, I'm going to turn to uh, what happened that, the day of, that, that horrible day in early August. There were warnings about the wind uh, that could be dangerous if a fire were to break out and have it spread, as it obviously and catastrophically did. Why weren't the weather warnings, there's a new report out, I think, in the San Francisco Chronicle, why weren't these weather warnings heated? Why weren't, they, uh, why weren't more people made aware of the danger? Well, what happened was the fire broke out early in the morning, around 930 in the morning, uh, in Lahaina, and it was put out. That fire was put out, even though there were winds. Then there were three other fires that broke loose uh, up country. The firefighters went to fight those, and the fire rekindled sometime between three and four in the afternoon. The fire department, which has somewhat finite resources, was ultimately occupied, and the tragedy occurred. There were always concerns about fire going to Lahaina, going to any part of our state. There was yeah. another fire on Big Island at the same time. So uh, as to them heating the fire, they did, but they had uh, incomplete capacity. And by the time the fire raged and 74-mile-per-hour winds moved it down the mountain, it was too late. Uh, that's the tragedy that we face, and we lost 100 souls that we love. So we're, we're yeah. digging out. We're building again. We're healing. But uh, let me just say this. Mahalo to the whole uh, country, to America, for sending their generosity and prayers to us because we are – going through a healing process here in Hawaii. Uh, I know we all share that sentiment, Governor. Thank you very much. Mahalo to you, and have a great new year out there in Hawaii. We appreciate your presence here today. Thank you. Take care. Okay. So, a panel, we saw the visit, uh, uh, the president visit Hawaii, and I'm going to bring Mick in on this, too. The president visited Hawaii in the wake of those wildfires, and uh, it's sort of a tangential issue, but always curious about, Mick, uh, where the president or any president chooses to go in, in the wake of a natural disaster. The president hasn't been to the southern border. Uh, he hasn't been to East Palestine, Ohio, for that matter, either, after that toxic cloud uh, inundated that town. How does that work, Mick? Why do you think uh, the president has not been to some of those places and has been to Maui? Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with blue state, red state. Um, it does and it doesn't, Mike. Here's the issue. The, the president's most val- valuable asset is his time, period, end of story. And how he spends his time is sort of reflects what his priorities are. That, that's just life. The president's only got 24 hours in a day. He's always the president. He's never on vacation. We've talked about that before. The president was right to go to Hawaii. He should have gone to East Palestine, Ohio, a long time ago. Now he's not been there for so long, he almost can't go because it will draw yeah. attention. To the he hasn't been there so long. On the border, it's a little bit different. I think he doesn't know what to do about the border. When you go to Hawaii, Donald Trump went to, for example, Puerto Rico after the hurricanes. Uh, he went to Texas after the hurricanes because we knew what to do. We had policies in place. We had, here's, what, here's how disaster relief funds yeah. flow. Here, we can do for you. We can help. I don't know what he does at the border because he doesn't have any answers. And I think that's why he's not going to Mexico. Right. And, and as, having covered the White House for many years, there's always a deliverable. What is he going to deliver any president when he shows up in, in the wake of a natural disaster or any kind of crisis situation? OK, thank you very much, Mick. We'll be back to you in the next segment later on the show and coming up, responding to the backlash. 
Nikki Haley's comments about the Civil War are coming back to haunt her just as she's surging in the polls. And now President Biden stepping into the fray. What it says about her candidacy and one possible reason why the president is getting involved. about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned, always the case. We know the Civil War was about slavery. But it was also more than that. It was about the freedoms of every individual. It was about the role of government. Okay, that was Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley today in Conway, New Hampshire. She was talking further about her controversial answers to this question. It's a simple question in any history textbook. What was the cause of the Civil War? Now, here's her original response that got her into hot water last night in Berlin, New Hampshire. Well, don't come with an easy question, right? I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. Okay. So mm. I'm going to start with you, Shermichael. Uh Hmm. What do you, why would she, I mean, we said this yesterday, Nikki Haley colors inside the line. She doesn't take chances. She went out three separate times before noon today on a radio show at the uh, town hall this morning, and then later talking to reporters on an ad hoc basis, which she never does to clean this up. Yeah, I mean, she needs to stop the bleeding, uh, I mean, at this point. I mean, I would say before this happened, Nikki Haley appeared to be a candidate who could be very competitive in New Hampshire. It certainly would have given her uh, the boost she needed going into her home state of South Carolina. I've been through all of these states yeah. with three presidential can uh, campaigns. And this was an easy answer. More than likely, it was a Democratic tracker who posed that question. I used to be an opposition researcher. This is a part of the process. Yeah. You're not blaming you, the you, question. I'm not. Okay. You, you prep your candidates for these types of scenarios. Yeah. However, Haley understands there's a certain group of Republicans who perhaps would not have wanted her to acknowledge that the root Maybe cause Maybe South Carolina in her home state, but come and, on. And, 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 well, and, and I think she was thinking about that, but at this point, she's not going to win those voters. So why attempt to appease New Hampshire, anyway? unaffiliated voters can vote in the Republican primary. No, 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 yeah. no, no, they can't, but she wasn't thinking about just New Hampshire. She, she's thinking about a national election. And there, there yeah. is a very small percentage of the Republican Party that does not acknowledge that the Civil right, War was part of the slavery. Well, yeah, Nikki Haley, incidentally, in the polling, mm -hmm. is the one Republican candidate who beats President Biden in a theoretical yeah. Matchup by the most. Yeah, by six, seven percentage points. President Biden, from his uh, vacation redoubt in St. Croix, said this last night, tweeted this four words. It was about slavery. Scott? Yeah. Um, I saw your tweet earlier today, too, because you thought this was pretty significant. Of that course. It, yeah, okay. I, think, I think it's over. Her chances, it's over. You think it's over? Oh, I absolutely yeah. think Come it's on. Here, here, here's, here's why, and we agree on that, is because Nikki Haley beats Trump in the general. This won't hurt her in the primary, I don't think, because America, black, white, yellow, brown, are still uncomfortable talking about race and racism and the original sin of this country uh, of slavery. And one of the reasons why race is still a factor in this country is because of that uncomfortability. Yeah. So how hard is it to say it was about slavery and it was about freedoms and so forth and so on, about treating people as human beings yeah. as opposed to treating them differently? And I think that's her challenge. It won't hurt her in the primary, but in the general, she's going to hear this I, over I think and over it will again. hurt her in the primary because if I'm a voter and I'm looking at Nikki Haley, this is a candidate that bounces around on every single issue. You have no idea what she actually stands for. And if I'm okay, a donor, right, I wouldn't put my money behind that type and They of don't candidate. want to talk about race. And they don't want that I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. Okay. I do not well, agree with that, I think Scott. 
polls That's not shows every that. single Republican I, voter I didn't in say America. that. I said most. That's you not care. most. It's not most. Perhaps a small sector of don't Republican don't want to talk about sure. race or the history of slavery in this country because it makes them feel bad and makes and them so feel it makes, like this country failed. So it makes white liberal progressives feel good? Is that what you're saying? No. they certainly aren't. you got to have a standard bearers of racial discussions in America. about race authentically, and most of us are uncomfortable talking about race. So don't just blame it only on Republican voters, Scott. Whether you look like my colleagues But don't only say Republican okay. voters. Well, they're a big part of it because they are uncomfortable with the race question, period. And so was Joe Biden in the black and brown people. And so was Joe Biden in the 1970s. So was Joe Biden during the crime bill. He's, He's only flipped because he was the vice president of the first black president. Come on, Gentlemen, I'm going to go to a South Carolinian, a Republican who knows Nikki Haley. Sure, Michael says, Mick, that she's done. Do you agree? Uh, no, I don't. I believe she, she she wishes she had this over. She really did. She really does. And you could tell by the damage control. Uh, and it didn't make it better, by the way, by saying she thought it was a Democrat plant. That actually makes it worse. Because if you want to exactly. be president, you, you have yeah. to be able to do things a lot more you know, insidious than just Democrat trackers. So there's a couple of mistakes here. That being said, uh, if she comes out right away and says, look, I, I screwed up. I, I sh- I, of course, it's about slavery. I, I, I should have said that. And I didn't. I've been talking all day. I'm tired. I'm really sorry. Right. I think folks would recognize that 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 happens when you talk all day for a living. You're going to say the wrong thing occasionally. And I think people get that. But I don't think there's a long window for this. I, I'm, I'm sort of with the rest of the panel. It, 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 this by itself is, is, is not fatal. But she doesn't have a long time to fix it. If this turns into a 24-hour story, she's had some great momentum. She can continue that. If this stays around another three or four days, it's going to be a real problem for her. I mean, the first votes are cast in the next several weeks. Okay, we're going to continue to talk about this. And she, she, needs, to so? hope. she needs to hope that Clyburn does not come out oh, and release yeah. a statement. South because Carolina if he does, co- she is done. There, there, yeah, is, but, there is no right. recovering from but, issues of race. Michael, it's wrong yeah, but, and move on. She a, had that opportunity to say that. But there is that. a way she can talk about it and get comfortable with it and say just what Mick Mulvaney just said, say it two or three times, say it over the next three or four days, okay. and then move on from yeah, it. I don't agree. There's I don't nothing agree wrong with that. It's a fact. It's a historical fact. He really doesn't have any room to mess up here. She now has the momentum, or she did yesterday. She needs to keep that up. She's not in the position that former President Trump is that he could say whatever he wants and not lose anybody who's backing him. So mm-hmm. she needs to either keep up her momentum or else it's going to be detrimental and for her. And he just yeah. said that she was playing it safe on the panel yesterday and then this happened. Right. Yeah, right. Um, She's playing it too safe. But, you yeah. know, she can't and I know Chris Christie was saying hard. that her, her team picks the questions from the audience uh-huh. and criticized her for that. Mm-hmm. This came out you know, so she was she had to answer and she can't avoid the questions when they come along. Okay. So I think she all right. Well, about all right. It. That is a discussion that I think we should probably pick up uh, on another show maybe tomorrow. <laughs> 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 to who may control the fate of the 2024 president election. One Democratic congressman thinks it could largely fall to, wait for it, the Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell. California Representative Ro Khanna is urging Powell to take action, saying, quote, Powell should cut interest rates now, given most of inflation was caused by supply shocks. If he doesn't, he may be the person most responsible for the possible return of Trump. Wow. The Federal Reserve earlier this month signaled it's planning three rate cuts next year. Okay, panel, I guess it's unanimous. Everybody hates Jerome Powell, including <laughs> the individual who appointed him to chair the Federal Reserve, and that's, that's Donald Trump. 
Why is, uh, you know... Well, if I had to guess, at this point, the White House is not happy with Ro Khanna, per se. <laughs> right. yeah. well, First of all, exactly. the White House has That's made never a green. serious yeah. effort to distance themselves from the Federal Reserve, which, as they should, you know, the, that's, they're supposed to be an independent Fed. Uh, second of all, let's remember, Jerome Powell's a Republican. He was appointed by former President Trump. You know, this is not somebody who decides elections. This is not a political person. The Federal Reserve, again, is independent, and it's in the White House's best interest to make sure that they remain independent, so this is not helpful. Kelly, the, the, the White House is getting a lot of grief, ridicule, for sticking to the Bidenomics message. Are they going to stay with it? You know, and we see him continue to hit the campaign trail on this. We just saw it a few weeks ago. And whether or not that's going to be a winning factor, maybe that's why we see them shifting more focus to the border, as we were discussing earlier in the panel. They are talking about that a bit more because that's going to be a big topic for Democrats and Republicans who I've talked to on the campaign trail. That is a top issue for them. So but the inflation is still. I think those are still the top issues when I right. speak to voters. Inflation and immigration. Right. Mick, I'm going to bring you in. The Hill has a headline today. Why Bidenomics is falling flat with voters. Uh, this coupled with one other, uh, one other Chiron we have there. Pizza Hut in California. Lay off thousands of California workers. That has a lot to do with raising the minimum wage out there. I'm not sure that's directly related to Bidenomics. <laughs> but you say that you can't tell people that the economy was great when they know it isn't. No, no, no. You can't convince people that they're wrong. These are these are the customers. and The customer is always right. If people are feeling down about their economy, their own personal economy, you can't convince them that they're just wrong about that. Oh, you're really doing a lot better than you feel. That is that is the wrong message to, to have. And but politicians of both parties have failed at that badly over the course of the of the centuries and so forth. But well, let me ask think, you something. Yeah. Let, let me ask you. So one of the, the cardinal rules of messaging in politics, right? Three of them, actually. Repetition, repetition and repetition. If they keep saying it and the economy is fundamentally sound, will people come around? Not if they don't feel it, Mike. If, if, if people really feel like they're not as like they're worse off now than they were four years ago and all you're doing is beating them over the head, telling them, no, you're actually better off. That's a real dangerous place to be. But here's the problem that Biden has. And there's some really good polling data out today from New Hampshire in the Republican primary. But keep in mind, independents can vote in New Hampshire. Yeah. That the border borders actually moving up in priority with those voters, that inflation and the economy is coming down a little bit and the border is coming up. So it may well be that Biden wins the argument on Bidenomics three months from now. But by that time, the border becomes a bigger issue. So he's sort of darned if he does and darned if he doesn't at this time, because I'm not sure I could say the other word on television. But it's a real <laughs> difficult <right? laughs> Okay, Mick, uh, we're going to have to leave it there again, folks. So thank you, Mick, for appearing with us from wherever you are. Uh, okay, oh, you're, you're going to run shirt, another Mick. block. Don't go anywhere. Right. I, I, I cut you loose too early the other day. I'm not going to do that again. Okay, coming up. Fear of escalation. Concerns are growing that Israel could face war on multiple fronts. What Israel's highest military official is saying and what it could mean for U.S. involvement. The vast majority of people are in the sensible middle. They're not the far right wing and they're not the far left wing. Every point of view is represented on News Nation. Veteran journalist Elizabeth Vargas, now on News Nation. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
learning that an Israeli-American woman believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas is actually dead. Judith Weinstein was killed on October 7th, and her body is being held in Gaza. That's according to a spokesperson from the kibbutz where she was taken. We learned about the death of Weinstein's husband last week. Now, retired Lieutenant General Richard Newton joins us. He is also News Nation's senior national security contributor. Okay, uh, Dick Newton, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to see you, sir. Uh, we're not paying quite as much attention to the war in Gaza, and yet it continues. Uh, we had Benjamin Netanyahu's right-hand man here early in the week to talk uh, to top U.S. officials. What is the status of Israel's offensive within Gaza? How much longer do you see it lasting? Well, Vic, good afternoon. That's a gut-wrenching report that you've got uh, regarding uh, the death and so forth and what's going on with the hostages, much less uh, the combat operations in Gaza. Right now, uh, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces are uh, just about to, uh, I think, close on a phase of their offensive actions in the northern part of Gaza. Uh, there's still some, uh, uh, some pockets of resistance, certainly with the Hamas terrorists. Uh, but right now, their focus now is in, in the central part of Gaza, and then their aim will be down towards the south, where the vast majority of the uh, uh, what is remaining of the 30,000 Hamas terrorists uh, are now uh, located, along with what my sources tell me, the 129 hostages, vast majority, if not all yeah. of them, are in southern Gaza. But my point is, I don't think there's a timetable here in terms of weeks. I think we're still talking months as, as the yeah. second half of the campaign starts to kick off. Uh, I want to read a quote to you from Benny Gantz. He's the uh, part of the Israeli war cabinet. He says, uh, if the world and the Lebanese government don't act, this is on Israel's northern border. If the world and the Lebanese government don't act in order to prevent the firing on Israel's northern residents and to distance Hezbollah from the border, the IDF will do it. Others in the Israeli cabinet are talking about a seven front war. Does Israel have that capability? Can it fight a war on seven fronts? That's extraordinarily difficult. But, you know, the nation state of Israel for the last several decades and certainly the last several years uh, has been surrounded by what some people call the Iran ring of fire. Uh, this all points back to Iran, by the way, Vic. You and I have talked about that before. You've got Hezbollah to the north, as you indicated, uh, the terrorist group that's uh, sponsored by Iran. You've got Hamas in Gaza. You've got the Houthis in Yemen and so forth. But it's, it would be very difficult uh, to for Israel to go it alone. And that's why they need the certainly the support of the United States, not only militarily, but certainly with intelligence capabilities, but also diplomatically as well. Along with, they've got a very challenging domestic political environment that uh, there's, there are, you know, with the three hostages who were killed recently yeah. uh, by Israeli Defense Forces, but also the, the call to do whatever, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu can do to, to, to at least create some conditions so all the hostages can come back. But I don't think Hamas is going to give up one more hostage until the conditions are favorable yeah. to them. All right. Well, Lieutenant General Richard Newton, thank you very much for joining us. Have a great holiday week and happy new year to you. Thank you, Vic. Happy new year to you and the panel. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I want to turn to our White House correspondents here and ask the president, President Biden, he went to Israel. He's been four square behind Israel. He's under pressure from the left. How are they responding? You know, as this war continues to drag on. Right. What we saw at the beginning, as we know, is a full force pro-Israel. We will support you and back you with the pressure from advocates, progressives, a lot of young Americans that are protesting. We've seen the president and the White House now stress a lot more of we need to protect civilians on the ground. We need humanitarian aid on the ground. Um, they were able to negotiate this ceasefire to get some hostages out that you know didn't last as long as they had hoped. So right now they're in the standstill of can we get another ceasefire? 
ceasefire. We still want to back Israel, but we also are getting a lot of backlash from the left about it. So I think in the new year, it'll be interesting to see how much, where they lean on that. And I'm just watching it from the perspective of the deterrence efforts. Um, I was just refreshing my emails because we were checking in on the the movements of more uh, ships to the Eastern Med from the Northern Red Sea. They've been up there for weeks. So where is the U.S. positioning? What is our next move? Because they are clearly trying to prevent this from becoming a larger conflict. There is that concern with those escalating attacks at the northern border between Israel and Lebanon, uh, stopping Hezbollah from getting involved in this. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, I'm sure. I'm curious what the next move is from the U.S. on this. And now, as we were discussing yesterday, yeah. the balance between deterrence and getting involved yeah. Yeah. in this conflict with our U.S. forces in the firing line. Yeah, Mick, I'm going to bring you in on this. Uh, the president walking and the administration walking a fine line, uh, not only politically, but militarily here, uh, as uh, the Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas uh, continue their attacks on Israel the administration clearly not to try, trying not to be drawn into a wider conflict in the region. Well, that's the biggest challenge here, right? Isn't it? They're going to have it's, this is this is why you get paid the big bucks as president, right? This is why you run for president is because you want moments like this, because this is a, a defining experience. And there's going to be more bad news, Vic. There just is a lot of these hostages are not coming back, especially the men that that, that, that Hamas is holding. So I don't expect a lot of more good, a lot more good news coming over the course of the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a very difficult situation for them to manage. Typically, typically foreign policy does not drive the outcome of elections in the United States of America. However, as we get closer and closer, closer and closer to the election yeah. date, how they how the White House handles this particular circumstance may have an impact because of how it impacts some of the subgroups, especially within Democrat parties. Yeah. Gentlemen uh, at the table here, um, yeah. we're seeing pro-Palestinian <laughs> protesters across the country at airports, at JFK, at LAX, blocking traffic, uh, really causing havoc in American cities. How is this going to play into public perception? Well, let's be clear. These are not pro-Hamas uh, protesters. They're pro-Palestinians. Okay. They're pro-peace. And many of them uh, are uh, liberal, liberal Jewish groups yeah. as well. Uh, they want peace. You can't. You've got these video images of tens of thousands of people who are innocent who've been killed. Israel certainly has a right to defend itself, and as you just saw, they're fighting on several different fronts. And so, I think it's a challenge for the Democrats because of the younger Democrats right. and the Arab Democrats. But we need to see. We're nine, ten months away yeah. from the general election. Okay. No, I just wish they would also condone or condemn rather Hamas. You do not see that, Scott, coming from any of those. You see groups. that in some of these. You've also seen pieces, leaders of, of various Palestinian organizations in Michigan say that they will not support the Biden-Harris re-election. They have, they're going to encourage Palestinian voters to also not vote for Biden-Harris. That's a serious problem for the president in a very tight state that he only won by, what, 22,000 votes? So there's a serious political problem here. All right. Well, thank they're you very much. You're going to make up 1% of okay. the Democratic voters. Time to move on to another break, but not before we say goodbye to Mick Mulvaney. This is official now, Mick. We are saying goodbye. (laughs) Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Okay, coming up. Remember, (laughs) Mick, there you are. Great shirt, Mick. (laughs) All right, coming up. Remember RoboCop? This isn't quite the movie, but it could be a look into the real-life future of policing, how the New York City Police Department is putting high-tech on the beat. You are out in New York City on New Year's Eve. You just might see its police department's futuristic approach to tackling crime. That would be robots. 
The K-5 robocops will be patrolling the city's busiest subway station, that's Times Square. They weigh close to 400 pounds and are equipped with four cameras to record video evidence. This comes as the NYPD reports over 400 complaints involving harassment, robberies, and assault. That's just in the last month alone. Okay, Hmm. is that going to make you feel safer? Some 400-pound sumo wrestler of a uh, robot motoring around on the subway platform? Actually, actually, it's not going to be on the platform (laughs) itself. It's going to be on the mezzanine. I mean, and it's got cameras. Yeah, yeah. but it can't do much else, right? I mean, it's it's, it's going to tackle the deterrence, but I think you need to have actual police officers with weapons to really deter crime. Well, apparently they will be there, and this thing is for if people are having a problem, they can approach the, the robot. I don't know. How it all works. Get on camera. What's the, yeah, what's it's it's very like? what's the response time? I don't know. I wonder if uh, the George Lucas estate <laughs> is uh, asking for uh, equal time. I mean, it looks like R2-D2 right there. It yeah. does have a tackling component to it. I understand the arms come out and they can yeah. tackle. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. Okay, I'm just, uh, wishful thinking. All right. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to wrap this up for today. And a quick programming night to note. Tonight on Elizabeth Vargas Reports, Natasha Zubis is filling in for Elizabeth Vargas. And tonight she'll be talking with Michael Alcazar, a retired NYPD detective and hostage negotiator. They'll be digging into the stats behind U.S. murder rates, seeing a record drop in 2023, and why Americans think violent crime is up despite that drop. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern, right after the Hill. That's actually in nine, eight seconds. Okay. (laughs) Handing it over to Elizabeth Barks Reports and Natasha. Bye now. And welcome to Elizabeth Vargas Reports. I'm Natasha Zubest in for Elizabeth tonight. In Moscow, Idaho, the grim reminder of the heinous murders of four University of Idaho students is gone tonight. Demolition crews arrived before dawn and tore down the structure in a matter of hours. The three-story home had become a tragic symbol of the gruesome deaths of Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Kaylee Consalvis, all found killed inside the student rental in November of 2022. Now, the suspect, Brian Koberger, has pleaded not guilty and is still awaiting trial. Prosecutors have requested it be set for next summer. The demolition happening despite a litany of pleas from the victims' families to keep it intact until the murder trial. They argue that it could provide a trove of valuable evidence for the case. But others asserted the community could not fully heal while the house remained standing. New 